Well, we've been on the left side of this for a long time. <laughs> We're not going to be on the right side very long here. We are in the New Testament. What's the first section called? Synoptic Gospels. Yeah, the Gospels. Yeah, I just put them all, just the Gospels. Um, and we're on the Gospel of Matthew this morning. I want to look at this timeline that Matthew did for us a while back, um, where he put all the books in, where they belong in the time. Although there wasn't room really to fit them all in here, and so this little angle line here shows they all have to be squeezed. Um, because the last book, Malachi, was probably written about 400 years before uh, before Christ. And 400, that's right there is about where the 400 B.C. is on the line. So um, there's a gap here that you don't... You, it's very hard to see it in this particular one. But And then he had to do the same thing with the New Testament because you got all these books in the New Testament that all have to cram into 100 years, which that dot there is at about 100 A.D., so um, <laughs> things are coming thick and fast at this point. The Jews had gone for 400 years without um, any any more inspired prophets, at least writing prophets. Whether there were just oral prophets, I couldn't tell you. But they'd gone; it had that gap, and a number of things that happened in that in, in the in the interim. They had been the whole world had been conquered by Alexander the Great. That was the biggest event. Um, although he was pretty nice to the to the Jews, but his successors weren't very nice, and they they'd had some very very difficult times with Antiochus Epiphanes, especially. They had translated the the Old Testament into Greek. What do we call that translation? Septuagint, abbreviated LXX, Roman numerals for seventy. Um, and uh, that had become had come into fairly wide use by the time of Christ because the Jews were scattered really all over the empire. They weren't just in Jerusalem and Babylon. They were all over the place. Down in Egypt, um, in Rome, North Africa, Turkey, just all over the place. And most of them were speaking Greek rather than Hebrew. In fact, none of them spoke Hebrew. Uh, the language that Jesus spoke was what? Aramaic. Aramaic, yes. Um, and Aramaic was the language of the Chaldeans, you know, in Babylon and all that. And there's a few chapters in the Old Testament written in uh, in Aramaic, but mostly the Bible, the Old Testament Bible was written in, in Hebrew. Um, we don't know whether Jesus could speak Greek or not. Uh, a lot of the Jews of his day could, especially those who were from Galilee. So that there's probably a pretty good chance that Jesus could speak Greek. Um, but the Jews were speaking Aramaic. And, and in fact, when, when they would read the Bible, the Old Testament Bible in the synagogues, uh, they would have to have someone to interpret it for them because Hebrew and Aramaic were, were really quite different languages. All right. Um, they weren't reading from the Hebrew, were they? Were they reading from the Septuagint? No, no, they were reading from the Hebrew. Yeah. Um, 
the Hebrew was closer to, the, to Aramaic than Greek. Greek would have been, yeah. Um, so we come to our first gospel. I, I can't guarantee it was the first one written, but it, but it might well have been the first one written. The Gospel of Matthew. And, and we've got an eight-point outline here, starting with the birth, early years, and ending up with the resurrection. We're going to cover the first two and a half points uh, today. Birth, early years, beginning of His ministry, and then His ministry in Galilee. Um, And I'm going to give a, to- a topic for most of the chapters here. It's just a little bit easier. The, the outline is covers too many chapters. So, chapter 1, the genealogy and the birth of Jesus. And, and in this chapter, we, we learn something about Matthew's target audience. Um, how many of the Gospels have a genealogy in them? Two. Two. What's the other one? Luke, that's right. Um, where does Matthew's genealogy start? Abraham. It starts with Abraham, yeah. Uh, which genealogy does really start at the beginning? Luke. Yeah, Luke does. He, he goes all the back, way back to Adam, the son of God. Matthew starts with Abraham. <clears throat> Does that give you any hint as to who his target audience is? That's right. Yeah, that and that that uh, the whole book appears to be targeted to Jews. Whether this is just Jewish Christians or whether he's really trying to cover Jews who weren't believers and trying to get them to be believers, I can't say for sure. Um, but I will say one thing, and that is that Matthew assumes that the people reading his book are thoroughly conversant with the Old Testament. And, of course, that's not really the case with a lot of people today that read the book of Matthew. And as a result, they they miss a lot of the points Matthew's making and they misunderstand some of the points even that he's making because of their lack of knowledge of, of the Old Testament Scriptures. He's writing to Jews of the first century who, who were just thoroughly conversant with the Old Testament and uh, the very books we've spent the last year and a half um, going through in in this study. So Matthew's going to—he's really going to trace the the fulfillment of the promises originally made to Abraham. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so he carefully picks a certain number of gener- generations. And he splits them into how many how many parts? Fourteen. Yeah, he has fourteen, fourteen, and fourteen. And I'm pretty sure that a Jew back in those days would have recognized that in doing that he had really split it into six groups of seven. And Jesus begins the seventh seven, and and the Jews would have understood that they, the people he's writing to. He doesn't have to tell you that. They would get the point that Jesus is the one who's going to finish because seven sevens would be complete. For a Jew, that is completion. And in fact, Matthew had to toss out some names in order to get it to fit. He's not claiming there were exactly that many names between Abraham and Jesus. 
what he's doing he's creating a stylized list to, to, to introduce his main point and that is that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Jews have been looking for and the divisions are interesting the first one from from Abraham to David that you know that's a very logical one but then he goes from David to the carrying away into captivity that's not something the Jews wanted to remember but but Matthew makes it a very major point in fact he has the same name on both sides of the, of that division <laughs> the 14 names up to the carrying away into captivity end with Jeconiah the 14 names after it start with Jeconiah <laughs> Jack and I get in there twice. That's the major point, the major division. And certainly that affected the Jews so completely after this time. Um, they were taken into captivity. They were slaves for 70 years. But then in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, we, we read that they were telling God in their prayers, we're still slaves. And they were. They were not a free people. And I think they understood the reason they were still slaves was because of their sins. And, the, and even after the return, they still had prophets coming and preaching to them saying, you need to repent. You know, God's not pleased with the way you people are living. Um, one of the big sins they had after they came back was intermarrying with the people of the surrounding lands. Ezra had to deal with that. Um, Nehemiah had to deal with that. Malachi, the very last book, he talked about it. Um, but by Jesus' day, they had solved that problem. Um, it was in Jesus' day. It would have been very, very rare for a Jew to be married to someone who was not a Jew. Now you might have had that some in some of the Greek Greek speaking areas, but but in in Palestine, Judea, and Galilee, you you just wouldn't have seen that. Um, so God's discipline has had an effect, but as we're going to see as we go through the Book of Matthew, there was a, they still had a long ways to go. Um, verse 21 of chapter 1 um, in, the, in the dream to Joseph the, uh, the Lord is telling him she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins who is his people? Jews. yeah that's right the Jews this is talking about Jesus saving the Jews from their sins and their situation ever since the captivity would be one of the biggest evidences that they still needed this. They, they were still enslaved. Instead of being enslaved to the Babylonians, they're now enslaved to the Romans. But there's not a huge difference. And the, the fact that Romans were in control is something that's in the background throughout these Gospels. Um, the Jews do not have, do not control their fate. It's up to the Romans, and the Romans have very different views than what the Jews have. But Jesus is going to come and save the people from their sins. When He saves the people from their sins, of course, they're going to be free, and this is what they've been looking forward to for, for hundreds of years. Then I wanted to look at one other passage here in the first chapter 
In, in verse 22, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now the word, the name Jesus doesn't mean God with us. The name Jesus is the exact same name as, as Joshua in the Old Testament. And that name means Jehovah is salvation. But He was also God with us. Um, but one of the things I want to observe here is that Matthew is saying this was fulfilling something. Where's Matthew quoting from? Yeah, Isaiah. This, we did this a couple months back. Um, Isaiah chapter 7. Matthew was going to do this more than I, than I, I believe any of the other Gospel writers. He really wants to show that Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies. Um, and he, he, some, of the, some of the ones he does are not easy, for, especially for a modern reader, but uh, it, it would have made more sense for those first century Jews that he was writing for. Alright, so that gets us started. Then, in chapter 2, we have the early years of Jesus. Um, the wise men come, and um, they ask King Herod where, where he is, and he asks the chief priests, and where do they say he's come? He's supposed to be born. Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Yeah. How do they know that? <clears throat> Written by the prophets. Well, yeah. Wh- uh, which prophet? Micah. Micah. Yeah, we did him. I think just two weeks ago, uh, Micah chapter five. Now he actually wrote seven hundred years earlier. So we covered 700 years awfully fast. <laughs> but they've been waiting ever since for this fulfillment that their, their long-awaited Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And so the wise men go to Bethlehem and there He is. This is the picture of a street in Bethlehem. The picture was taken in 1880. <coughs> I expect it didn't look a lot different then than it did back in Jesus' day. <laughs> it looks pretty old-fashioned there, certainly. It's a photograph from 1880? Yeah, it's a photograph from 1880. Yeah. Well, I mean, they were doing photographs in the Civil War, so you know, this is 30, yeah, 20 years after the it, Civil War. It, it wasn't like a, uh, uh, a fast film. No, you didn't whip out your camera. And it asked everybody to stand still. <laughs> Don't no, I think that it looks to me like they had pretty fast filming. Look at that dog. I mean, he's not going to stop for you. Yeah. No, they had they'd come a long way since the early days of the daguerreotypes. Um, and then if here's a map of all of Palestine and then way on to the north. This on this map, you're looking at everywhere Jesus ever went, except one place. Egypt, <laughs> which is where he goes in this chapter, in fact. Um, but even uh, Caesarea Philippi was about as far north as he as he went. And during his days of preaching, he never went much farther south than, than Jerusalem. But when he was a little baby, they took him all the way down to Egypt, just off the map down there. Uh, he was born here in Bethlehem, which is about five miles south, a little bit southwest of Jerusalem up there. So his parents could have easily taken him to the temple as they did in the book of Luke when he was um, 
40 days old. Um, so in verse 15, he remained there, that is in Egypt, until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. What prophet said that? Hosea. Hosea, yeah. We did him, I don't know, three or four weeks ago. Not too long. Um, now, when Micah said that, it was not a prophecy of the Messiah. We, we, I mentioned that when we were covering it. That Micah was talking about the Israelites that were called out of Egypt. And, and Massey knows that. Massey's not trying to cheat and grab something that has the right words but really isn't talking about the Messiah. He's not trying to do that. What Matthew was showing is that for Jesus to be the fulfillment and started the last group of sevens, Jesus is starting a brand new movement just like what happened under Moses when God led the people out of Egypt. And so Jesus is going through the same experiences as that Israel did throughout its history. And so Matthew is making a much deeper point than just Jesus fulfilled a fact that had been prophesied. Um, Jesus was actually reenacting the whole life of the nation of Israel. He, he was really the fulfillment of Israel. Israel had failed. And that's why they were, they were slaves at this time. Jesus is now going to go back and start all over in Egypt and He's going to succeed. Yeah. Uh, thinking along with the uh, example you make of, of Egypt and coming out of Egypt, one of God's stated purposes was to, uh, beginning with Moses, He wanted to make Himself known to the people, first with Moses, then Pharaoh, then the, the Hebrew people, and the world. And with Jesus, the fulfillment there is He's making Himself known by coming to earth in the body of a man and uh, uh, make Himself known to everybody who would be willing to hear. Right, and He's doing for man what man had never been able to do for Himself, even though man had tried for many centuries. Yeah. Other comments? The last verse of chapter 2 says, And He came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This will fulfill what was spoken to the prophets. He should be called a Nazarene. And if you'll notice in your Bibles, you probably don't have a marginal notice of where that prophecy is. <laughs> because it's not. There is no prophecy in the Old Testament that says that. But the word Nazarene comes from the Hebrew word netzer. The word netzer means a sprout. The, um, I assume this, the, the town of Nazareth was, was given that name because it was a little old village off, kind of off the beaten path, you know, a little, little sprout here, um, not one of the big, you know, up and coming cities. But in the Old Testament, the word netzer is used in Isaiah chapter uh, 9, where it says that a shoot will come out of the, the root of Jesse. That word shoot is that word netzer. And a very similar in English, a similar word is the word branch. In Hebrew, it's a very different word, but it, it, talks, it has the same idea. And we saw how Jeremiah talked about the branch referring to the Messiah. 
Zechariah talked about the branch in front of the Messiah. It all goes back to, to Isaiah chapter 9 where the family of David is chopped down like a tree and there is no royalty, no one sitting on the throne. And a little shoot comes out of the stump just like you probably have seen come out of tree stumps. Trees seem like it's dead, but then shoots come out and it's alive again. So with the family of David, it's chopped down, but this little shoot comes out. And the Hebrew word for shoot was netzer. And that's the same word that's part of the word Nazarene. So that Matthew is trying to show that even with the accidental situations like the fairy town he grew up in, it's not accidental in God's sight. He's arranged to where the term would be the very term you would expect applied to the, the Messiah. <clears throat> Furthermore, it's not just wordplay here. There was the same attitude toward people coming from Nazareth. You, you may recall in, in the book of John when um, I forget the names, but I, um, was it Philip? Was it Philip? What was the one saying, "Can any good thing come out of Nazareth?" Nathaniel, you're right. Philip was the one that invited Nathaniel. Nathaniel says, "Hey, can any good thing come out of Nazareth?" That was the attitude of Nazareth. It's just a, a, a little village. It's just a little sprout. You know, nothing, nothing like where you would expect uh, an important person to come from. And Matthew is trying to point that out to us. This is exactly what was prophesied. He was going to come out of something that was nothing. That that was predicted. All right. So chapter three, we get to John the Baptist, um, and again a fulfillment in chapter three. This is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet. This is chapter 40. It begins the second half of the book of Isaiah. We covered that when we studied Isaiah. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make His path straight. And um, one of the messages that John made was in verse 9. Do not suppose you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Very important theme. And, and, and it's a theme that, that continues in the book of, of Matthew. The Jews were trusting in their lineage. And John the Baptist say, is saying, that's not going to cut it. It's not your lineage that, that's going to make any difference before God. It's how you live your lives. And God ha, ha, has told you how to live and He, and he wants you to repent. So then he talks about the one coming after him in verse 11. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So then when Jesus arrives in verse 13, he comes to John to be baptized by him. And we've got to bring up the map again. Where was John baptizing? In the Jordan. Yep. The Jordan connects the Sea of Galilee with the Dead Sea. It's this blue line here. Um, probably John was down in this area near the Dead Sea. We know at one point he was baptizing at Bethany beyond Jordan. Um, so, he, he, And we know also that he grew up in the wilderness of Judea. So it would make sense that it would be down in this area. So Jesus had come from Nazareth down there and specifically get baptized. And of course John recognize this doesn't fit, but 
Uh, he did baptize him. And then afterwards, in verse 16, the heavens were open. He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We do not have the account of Jesus' first 30 years of life. But we do have God's summary of it. I am well pleased. Jesus had done a perfect job of living the 30 years to that point. And God said, I am pleased with Him. So now He begins His public ministry. And the beginning of it, He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The wilderness is down in this area, the wilderness of Judea, just west of the Dead Sea. It's the area where David um, hid from Saul. Um, you know, many years ago, his, his ancestor David. Um, here's a view of it taken at sunset. The orange color is because of the sun hitting the tops of the mountains. Um, and I'm not certain, but you may be able to see the Dead Sea in the background. I'm, I'm not certain whether this is just haze or if that's really the Dead Sea there, that blue part. Um, but that's what it would have looked like for Jesus those 40 days He spent there. And um, at the end of that time, He was hungry and the temperature came. What was the first temptation? Stones of bread, yeah. What was the second temptation? Cast himself down from Jump off the temple, angels will catch you. What was the final one? I'll give you the world. Fall down and worship me, I'll give you the whole world. Yes. <clears throat> Three temptations and, and you know, you may think think of John's separation of the three temptations into the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, um, and I got him in the wrong order. Um, what was what's the third one I missed? Oh, the loss of the eyes. Yes, thank you. Um, then, when he finished those temptations, he moved from Nazareth to where? This is in verse thirteen. Yeah, and so Nazareth is just going to be a place he visits just once or twice after this. Um, Capernaum is his headquarters right on the Sea of Galilee um, it's not really an ocean it's a, a freshwater lake they call it the sea but it's freshwater lake pretty good size but um, you know the water drains out down the Jordan River to the Dead Sea um, this is an aerial view of Capernaum it doesn't look as big as what I would expect and maybe it was bigger back then but um, they're doing a lot of archaeological work, digging up foundations of houses that, that go back perhaps as, full, as long as Jesus' day. Um, this is actually a church building with a with a floor made out of glass so you can look underneath it and see where they believe Peter's house was. Um, and then this is... They're, they're uh, excavating the ancient synagogue. I don't know whether that was the synagogue that Jesus would have taught in, but if not... The one he taught it would have been in the same place. That might have been built on top of it later. Um, so if they're right about where Peter's house was, then he didn't have to go very far to get to the synagogue. <laughs> um, and of course, here's the Sea of Galilee where they launched their uh, fishing boats from. 
So, verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same message John the Baptist had said, of course. Um, then in verse 18 and 19, he called the first two disciples. Who were those? Peter and Andrew. Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And they, and they followed him. All right. Then the next three chapters are one sermon. Sermon on the Mount. Um, greatest sermon ever preached. Um, and one that we can't possibly do justice to in the next ten minutes. <laughs> you may recall a series of sermons I've, I preached on this years ago. There's just an enormous amount to this. But we'll go through this outline um, at least briefly. Characteristics of the subjects of the kingdom. Uh, you notice I put the sermon about the kingdom of God. That's the, that's the point of this sermon. The people were expecting the kingdom of God. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, same thing. Um, so, He wants to tell them about this kingdom. And He starts by say, telling them who's in the kingdom. What, what are they like? What, what are the people in the kingdom like? And, and we call these, the first seven, what, what do we call them? The Beatitudes. The word Beatitude comes from the Latin word for blessed. These are the blessed, the seven blesseds. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What For, for why? There is the kingdom of heaven. Um, nobody who is not poor in spirit will get in the kingdom. Which was the very opposite of what they would have expected. They were expecting um, power. Uh, and, and poverty is not power. Poverty is the opposite of power. Um, then we have the vocation of the subjects in verses 13 to 16. Vocation means what their job is. And what is the job of the subject of the kingdom in this section? To what? No, no, I'm into the next section, verses 13 to 16. Yeah, what's their job? Show God to the world. Yeah, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. So the job. So we 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 saw the characteristics. I don't have time to cover all seven characteristics, but their job is to show God to the world. Then he talks about the relationship of his of the new righteousness to the Mosaic law. The first section it is we call the relationship defined. Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. And he says in verse 24, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And the rest of the chapter is applications of this. Um, the relation illustrated. For example, you've heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. Where is that found? Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20. But what does Jesus say instead of you shall not commit murder? Don't even get angry with people. Yes. Don't even insult them. And he continues doing that. Again, the rest of the chapter is illustrations of the point that our righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And in each case, the illustration is showing that we have to do more than just obey the letter of the law. We have to obey the spirit that's behind this law. Um, 
So for example, in verse 38, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now that's not in the Ten Commandments, but it is in the law of Moses. Um, that was a limitation upon the judicial sentences handed out for breaking the law. If someone takes someone else's eye out, you, you can take their eye out, but nothing more than that. But instead, what does Jesus say our attitude must be? Turn the other cheek. Yes. Now, he's, Jesus is not changing. He, Jesus is not telling judges this is the way you need to do. You know, someone pokes someone's eye out. You know, the judges are just supposed to dismiss. He's not saying that. He's talking about for us when we are personally insulted, and and certainly being slapped on the cheek is an insult. Our attitude is, it doesn't matter about me. We're, we're concerned about God, not about ourselves. And someone sues you to take your shirt, of course, you know, your natural reaction is, I can afford the best lawyer there is, and I'm going to go after this guy. And Jesus says, no. Um, what's He say? Instead of let, if He wants to have your shirt, let Him have your coat also. It's not about us, is, is the point He's trying to make here. And He finally ends the chapter in verse 38, 48. Therefore, you are to be what? Perfect. Perfect. As your heavenly Father is perfect. So if there was any question about Jesus lowering the bar, <laughs> He says no. The bar is, is just as high as it always has been. The standard is God's goodness. <laughs> Whoa. Chapter 6. Motives and principles of conduct. And the first one is, in, is conduct in worship. Um, and we have to be aware of practicing our righteousness in what way? Before men, yeah, to be noticed by them. That's, you know, give a lot of money to help the poor, but make sure everyone knows what you're doing. Fast, but, you know, you look terrible because everyone will know how suffering you are. Um, Praying, you know, make sure you pray at a prominent spot where they'll, they'll pay attention. And, and it's in this context that he gives the famous Lord's Prayer in verse 9. Pray then in this way Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And also motives in terms of what we're living for. What's life's purpose about? In verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. We're not living for money. We're living for God. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, what? There your heart is. Yeah. And similarly in verse 25, I mean, the, the early verses were, were addressed to middle class Americans. You know, we want to store up our money. The, the next section is addressed to poor people. But middle class Americans can fall into this category too. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink. Nor for your body as to what you will, be put, will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. 
the same the attitude that the rich people have in laying up treasure on earth is the same problem that poor people have in worrying about what they're going to eat or what they're going to drink. Both of them show a lack of trust in God and a dependence upon things instead of upon God. So he says in verse 34, Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And then in chapter 7, in social relations, again, this is still under the general category of motives and principles of conduct, but he says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Um, in verse 3, Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? In chapter 6, we were, we were considering other people because we wanted to show off for them. Now in chapter 7, we're considering other people because we want to judge them. We've got it all together and they don't. And Jesus says, you need to be spending time on yourself. <laughs> Verse 6, Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine. This seems like almost like it doesn't belong here. Because verse 6, you have to judge someone to be a dog. But I think Jesus is, is trying to show us that um, although He's talking about a certain kind of judgment we can't do, there's another kind of judgment we must do. And, and we, we have to consider that the message we have is, is precious and it's not to be um, stomped on in the mud by giving it to people that are just going to um, despise and, and ridicule it. So how do you make the distinction? I think verse 7 answers that. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. God's, God's the source of, for the solution of this very difficult matter of distinguishing. And he finally summarizes this section in verse 12. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. What do we call that? Golden rule. Yeah, it's the golden rule. And then we finally have a hortatory conclusion. I did not make up these words. Um, hortatory is a word that is related to exhortation. You might even see the word, the part, the hort part in exhortation. So a hortatory conclusion is a conclusion that is exhorting people. Jesus wants to make sure that people make the right choices. And that's what this, this is about. So verse 15, um, or verse 13 rather, enter through the narrow way, the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. And then he warns about... Um, the, in verse 15, he warns about the false prophets come to you in sheep's clothing. We're talking about this course on Wednesday night. And he finally ends in verse 24 with the um, story of the wise man and the foolish man. Um... The wise man built his house where? On the rock, yeah. And the rain came, and the floods came. His house stood firm. The foolish man built on sand. Sand, yeah. Now, think about this overall sermon in the context of what the Jews of the first century were looking for in a Messiah, and you'll see how strange this was. They were looking for the Son of David to come and take the throne again, raise an army, and kick out the Romans. And the, the poor downtrodden Jews will be lifted up 
and they'll all live happily ever after. And Jesus is telling them, it's not going to be like that. You yourselves need to make a choice. And if you make the wrong choice, your house is going to fall down. A lot of them didn't like that. (laughs) And that's going to be the story of the rest of the book. Um, Well, they were certainly surprised. In verse 28, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at His teaching, for He was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Of course, I mean, you read the sermon and you think that too. You know, Jesus, where are you getting this from? I say to you, <laughs> He had the authority. <coughs> Alright, so that finishes the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and then in chapter 8, we have, it's very hard to t- title all these, ser- these chapters, Healings, Tests of Discipleship, and Miracles. Um, in verse 8, we have a centurion that wanted Jesus to come heal his servant, but he had more faith than the average person. What was his faith? Just say the word and it'll be done. Yeah. And Jesus was blown away. You know, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with any with anyone in Israel. It was just amazing. And recognize with Matthew's target audience being Jewish Christians and also the Jewish unbelievers. One of the biggest problems that both groups had was in the fact that the church was wide open to Gentiles. Paul was dealing with this problem and Matthew would have been writing probably in the days of Paul. And so this is a reminder. What do you guys say, you Jews? You know, here's this Gentile who's got more faith than Jesus ever found among the Jews. Can we really keep these guys out of the church if they're doing better in the matter of faith than you are? <laughs> Matthew doesn't have to preach a sermon. He just reports it. <laughs> the point's pretty strong. Um, so then in verse 19, this is switching subjects, a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. So what did Jesus say to that? They won't have a place to sleep. <laughs> yeah. You need to think again. So, it, it, he's, he's talking about discipleship here. What, what, what does it mean to follow Jesus? It's not the easy path. And then, and of course, Matthew just throws these stories in so fast. In verse 23, he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and when they got out on the sea, what happened? Yeah. I don't know, this, this didn't come out so good on the, on the overhead, but this is a painting of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And um, he Jesus calmed the storm and then he says, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? And finally, uh, we have chapter nine, we'll find it for this morning that is. Forgiveness forgiveness of sins, the call of Matthew, and more miracles. The forgiveness of sins is is this interesting story uh, where these guys bring I got a paralytic on a bed. Now, over in Luke, it tells about how they got him into the house, but he, but Jesus, Matthew's not going to that here. He just goes right to the heart of the problem. Jesus sees the guy, and instead of saying, "Hey, get up and walk," what's he say? Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. 
If somebody did that today, what would you think? He doesn't know the first thing about forgiveness. I mean, I could forgive somebody if they sinned against me. I can't forgive someone if they sinned against you. And I certainly can't forgive them if they sin against God. But here's this guy that Jesus just says, your sins are forgiven. And so the scribes, what do they think? Blasphemy. Yeah, this guy's blasphemy. And of course, this is, this is at the heart of the the objections that the Pharisees and the scribes had to Jesus, and it ultimately led to his, his death. But Jesus then proved that he had the right to forgive the guy's sins by doing what? He healed the guy, yeah. There's the evidence. Then in the next section, he calls a tax collector named Matthew to follow him. And, uh, and then he goes and eats with a bunch of Matthew's friends, and, and the Pharisees give him grief about that. And then um, we have one of the, one of his gritty, amazing miracles in verse twenty three and following when um, he raises a girl from the dead. Now he says she's in verse twenty four she's not died but is asleep. Um, but that's the way Jesus talked about people that were dead; <laughs> they were asleep. And um, then some blind men come to be healed. He, he gives them their sight back. We have some demon casting out, and then the um, Pharisees were saying he cast out demons by what? The devil. Yeah, the ruler of the demons. Yeah. But finally, I want to read the last two verses of the chapter because they set things up for next week. He said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into His harvest. Next week, we'll see how God answered the prayer. <laughs> All right. Appreciate everyone's help this morning.